Well, we were uh, scheduled to be in Genesis 35, um, but the Supreme Court changed my direction Friday, so um, I say that kind of in jest, but not really. Um, so I, wanna, I want us to go to Matthew chapter 19 today. This is not going to be a politically centered message. This is going to be a gospel-centered message. Matthew chapter 19. But I think it's important for the church. We should not be a people that lives with our heads in the sand. We should not be a people that are deaf and blind to the realities around us. If there is anybody on planet Earth that should be in tune with the things that are happening around us. It should be the people of God. It should be the church. And the things happening around us should inform us as to how we need to be walking out, living out, preaching, and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? So let's go to Matthew chapter 19, and I'm going to read... Um, I'm going to read... Uh, Six verses, the first six verses. It says, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh." Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And then Jesus goes on and he says, the only reason that Moses gave you writs or certificates of divorce was because of the hardness of your hearts. So what I want to focus on here, the question posed to Jesus was, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus responds, and we read the response of Jesus. So the topic of my conversation today is not divorce, it's marriage. Um, divorce and marriage are related, right? Marriage is the joining of two people. Divorce is the separation of two people. But what does this scripture have to do with what happened on Friday? So if you don't know... Friday, the Supreme Court issued their ruling on same-sex marriage, and the Supreme Court said from its bench in Washington, D.C., that same-sex couples have all the rights as any other couple. So what the Supreme Court did, in essence, was say that states now cannot discriminate against same-sex couples, that they must be afforded the same rights so two men, two women can go down to the county courthouse. They should be able to get a marriage license, and those two men or those two women should be able to be legally married in any state in the union. Now, it's going to take some time. There's going to be challenges and all of this. But something very historic happened on Friday. I don't want to minimize that. Now, having said that, we should not be fearful I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? In the course of time, what if they said that every church has to perform same-sex marriages? That's not what the Supreme Court said, as a matter of fact. Uh, Judge Kennedy, who was the swing vote, was very, was very specific in saying that that's not what this ruling is about. But if you follow the court, if you follow politics at all, what you do know is that this has opened up a door and nobody knows what's going to come through that gate. But there's going to be a lot more coming through the gate than what came through it on Friday. That was just the gate being kicked open. Now 
who knows what's going to come as a result of that. And so I don't think the church should pretend like nothing's happened. I don't think the church should uh, turn a blind eye or a deaf ear. I think the church needs to be aware of what's happening. The church in America needs to be aware of what's happening in America. God put us here. You were born in America or you came to live in America. However you came to be here by birth or by immigration, however you got here, you're here. And you should look at this nation as the place of your residence, and you should pray for this nation and pray for its leaders and pray for the governmental systems and the processes, and you should be engaged in that spiritually and in every other way. And our prayer and our hope should be that this nation, I read the psalm today, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. When God sent Israel into captivity to Babylon, he commanded the Israelites to pray for the peace of the, their city that they live. Pray for the peace of Babylon. Pray for the city that you're going to be in. Yes, you're going to be captives. Yes, you're going to be carried away and you're going to be slaves. Pray for that city that's holding you as a slave. That's what God commanded them to do through the prophet Jeremiah. How much more should we as Americans, as free citizens, how much more should we pray for? and hope for and work for this nation to come to repentance and under the rule of a sovereign God and sovereign king in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to talk to you today about God and marriage. I want to talk to you today about love wins. People are using that hashtag love wins, but they're using it in the wrong way. I promise you love wins. It does. It's just not going to it's not going to win the way a lot of people think it, 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 what that means. So I've read to you Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. I want to read to you now 1 John chapter 4. I want to read verses 4 through 10. John writes, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I want you to remember that, Christian. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. Why is anybody listening to us? There's your answer right here. Don't be surprised when the world doesn't hear what you have to say, because they're deaf. Until God opens their ears, until God heals their blindness, they can't hear, they can't see. But that doesn't mean we stop speaking. That means we keep speaking. We keep hoping, we keep praying for blind eyes to be open and deaf ears to be unstopped. So that when they are, they can hear the word of God and be changed and transformed by that very word. John goes on, he says, By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love is not just an emotion. Love is not just a feeling. In fact, the Bible says God is love. Love is a person. And the person of love was personified in the flesh in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So love wins because God is love. And God has already won. Do not fear what man can do or what man will do or may do. Fear God and know that love wins because God is love and he is the sovereign and victorious king over all. And having come to this realization, knowing this, 
we should stand for truth and we should stand in love. So stand for truth and stand in love. So let's talk about God and marriage. I think it's important that you, as these arguments and these conversations are swirling around you, there are a lot of people speaking. There's a lot of Christians I hear speaking who don't have a clue what they're talking about because they're picking up rhetoric and they're picking up things from the popular culture and from the media and from all sources. I mean, we get more of our theology from movies like P.S. I Love You than we do from the Bible. And that's not the way it should be. So it's very important that we as believers, if you profess to be a believer, you need to be aware of what the scripture has to say. So that when the arguments swirling around you from the culture come to you, you have a response. Or at least you know how to respond. Remember, the proverb says that there's a time to answer the fool and there's a time to not answer the fool. You need to use the wisdom of God to know when you need to answer the fool and when you need to just keep your mouth shut. There are times when you're going to hear the argument swirling around you and you just need to go, you know what? I'm not going to say a thing because it's it's pointless. There's other times, though, when the argument's going to be swirling around you and you absolutely need to speak up. But how are you going to speak up if you don't know what to say? How are you going to answer if you don't understand what the answer is yourself? How do we find the answer? We go to the scripture. So let's talk about God and marriage. So we read the scripture in Matthew. So let's just look at what Jesus lays out for us in Matthew, uh, specifically in verses 4, 5, and 6. So let me read you the words of Jesus again in these three verses. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So let's look at this. Let's look at the first thing. Jesus defines gender. He who made them at the beginning made them male and female. Guess who determined your gender? God did. God determines your gender. Not you, not your doctor, not your psychologist, not your psychiatrist, and certainly not your government. So Jesus defines gender. When God created them in the beginning, he created them male and female. And then Jesus defines what a family is. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. You notice we have male and female, and we have father and mother, and those correspond. Male corresponds to father, and father corresponds to male, and female corresponds to mother, and mother corresponds to female. So, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the family defined. Now, it's backwards math. We have two becoming one. One plus one is two. Here's the miracle of God's mathematics. He takes one man and he takes one woman and he puts the two together and he makes what? He makes one. When God created Adam and when God created Eve, it's not an accident that God formed Eve from the flesh, from the rib, from the very substance of life of Adam. It was not accidental. It was absolutely on purpose that God did not take more dirt and form Eve. But instead, God put Adam in a death-like sleep, opened up the rib of Adam, and took from the very life of Adam and fashioned from that life the woman. 
Now listen, you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to understand the clear and the plain meaning of what Jesus is saying here. Your English translations are very reliable, I promise you. You can read in English everything you need to read, and you can know from reading your English Bible everything you need to know that's communicated in the Hebrew and the Greek scriptures. God created them in the beginning, male and female. So Jesus defines a family as a father, a mother, and a child. So what we see is the natural progression is you have a father, you have a mother, and they will be joined together by God to become one flesh, and that father and mother, that man and that woman, through the miracle of procreation, will produce a child. Does that mean families who are single moms raising their children are not families? That No, please do not hear what I am not saying. We have a lot of victims in our, in our society, in our culture. But you may have been victimized by a spouse that abandoned you, but you don't have to live as a victim. That's the good news. There are a lot of parents who have been victimized because a spouse has abandoned them. But in Jesus Christ, you don't have to live as a victim. There are a lot of children who are being born into fatherless homes. They're not fatherless. They just don't have a father present in their lives. I meet them on a regular basis. Some are young and some are quite old and they've lived their entire lives in and out of prison. And the common denominator with many of these guys is they never had a father in their home. Does that mean they didn't grow up in a family? No, they grew up in a family. Was their family dysfunction? Yes, it was dysfunctional. So what Jesus presents here is a picture of a functioning family. As God ordained it, as God created, the family is to function with a father and a mother and the children underneath that father and that mother in the context of a loving home. If you know basic biology, two men cannot produce a child. And two women cannot produce a child. Only a man and a woman coming together can produce children. For two men or two women to have children, they've got to do it some other means. But they can't do it naturally according to the created order. That should inform us about something. Why did God create it that way? Why did God make it that way? You'll have to ask God that one day. But Here's what we know. That's the way he made it. That's the order of his creation. So Jesus defines family. Ideally, we're not being Pollyannish. We're not being uh, denying reality. We understand the reality of dysfunctional homes. We understand the a reality of abandoned spouses. We understand the reality of fatherlessness in our nation. We understand that. But we also understand the picture the scripture presents the ideal situation is for a father and a mother to have children in that context, to raise their children in that context. What do we do with families who don't have that context? I'll tell you what we do. This is where the church needs to rise up, needs to stand up, needs to come alongside mothers and fathers and children and be a witness to them. You, if you have an intact family, if you have a mother, a father, and children, all together in one home, and you're a gospel-centered family, you need to be a witness to those out there who know nothing but dysfunction. You need to do it in word. You need to do it in deed. You need to reach out to them and try to bring them into the cycles and the rhythms of your life so that they can come to know what God ordained to be in terms of the family so that they can have hope that they don't have to grow up thinking that they're just a victim and they're hopelessly broken with no chance of ever having anything of normalcy. The Bible gives us good news. 
We have hope in Jesus, and we need to give that hope to the broken that are among us. But we can only do that if we understand what, what it's supposed to be. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. Listen, if you grew up in an intact home, if you've got a, a, an intact home with a father and a mother and the children all together, it, don't be ashamed of that. Let God take that and use that for his glory and bring other people into that so that out of their dysfunction, they can learn. That's what the Bible calls discipleship. So Jesus defines family. This father, a mother, a child, a father and a mother see their son or their daughter leave and be joined to another. A husband and a wife are joined and the two become one flesh. So Jesus defines gender. Jesus defines family. A husband and a wife form the basic foundation of the family. Procreation happens and children are produced as God ordained in creation. Families multiply. The cycle continues. It's how we went from two people in a garden to almost seven billion now. I told you guys about the article I read where the European uh, scientists who are studying genetics and anthropology are stumped because in all of their scientific study of genetics and anthropology, here's what they have decided, and they cannot figure it out. This was a real news story I read. This wasn't from some Christian news story. This was a mainline news story. These scientists said, we can't figure this out, but it seems that everything traces back to three individuals. All of our European ancestry goes back to three guys, and we can't figure that out. Can you figure it out? Maybe it's Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Maybe it's the three guys that came off the ark. I don't know. I'm just saying. That's what science says. Science can't figure it out. I'm just going to go to my Bible and say, I think I got the answer right here. It's in the scripture. So uh, this is the cycle. This is procreation. This is, this is men and women. This is humanity doing what God created it to do being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. What is the purpose of that? Just so that we can overrun and overpopulate the earth? Please don't buy into that either. That's a different sermon for a different topic. But, but here's the reality. Why did God command man to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth? Because God's purpose is ultimately his glory. And the command to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth is to fill the earth with the image and the glory of God. The prophet says this, Habakkuk 2.14, there is a day coming when the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. So Jesus defines gender, Jesus defines marriage, and he sets as, a, as the foundation of that family, uh, the husband and the wife. So he defines gender, he defines family, Jesus defines marriage. God made them at the beginning male and female. God said, this is recorded, by the way, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Jesus is quoting the book of Genesis. For all those liberal theologians who don't know whether we should be believing Genesis or not, listen, the Lord Jesus Christ quotes the second chapter of Genesis and says, when he made them in the beginning, he made them male and female. I'm going to go with Jesus, okay? I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to say, forget you liberal theologians. I'm going to go ahead and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He quoted from Moses' writings, so I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and just say it's okay for me to read it, to quote it, and to trust in it myself. So Jesus quotes, and he says, God made them at the beginning, male and female, God said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. For this reason, what reason? That the two shall become one. Why does a man leave his father and mother? Why does a woman leave her father and mother and be joined together with another? The reason is so that they will become 
one flesh. Jesus is defining marriage. Don't miss this. This is so plain to see that you've got to want to miss it. Jesus uses the words male and female, father and mother, man and wife. Jesus clearly understood and clearly defined marriage as the union between one man and one woman. To believe anything other than what Jesus teaches us about marriage is willful disobedience and a denial of God's word and God's truth. And guess what? We live in America. People have the right to not believe God's word. There's a lot of people that don't. And I'm not talking to the world today. I'm talking to the church today. I'm going to take it upon faith. I don't know that everyone here is born again. But I'm going to talk to everyone here as though you are born again. I'm going to talk to you from the scripture as though you are a believer. Because that's what the Bible says I'm supposed to do. I'm here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I'm not here to make you feel good about your sin. I'm not here to make you feel like you got some brownie points because you got up early and came to church this morning. I'm not here to get you over the hump when Wednesday comes to give you enough motivation to get you over the hill so you can make it to the next weekend. That's not what I'm here for. The Bible says I'm here for a very specific purpose. That God gave pastors and teachers to the church so that they could equip the saints for the work of ministry. There is a need for the work of ministry to take place in our nation. I think Friday proves that. I talked to someone Saturday who just moved here from Canada. And she, she actually was born here, but has lived away from the United States for many years, has, has uh, spent a lot of time ministering to Muslims. And spends a lot of time with people from other lands. And she said, and we, we talked about this reality, America is a destination point for missionaries now. Here we are in America, and the American church thinks we're all about sending missionaries all over the world, and we're the cat's meow, and you know we're just God's answer to, to planet Earth, the United States of America. Listen, I love America. I'm glad I'm, I've God graced me to be born here. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I wouldn't want to be called by any other name than American other than Christian. Uh, heaven's my home. Christ is my home. Uh, America's the country on earth I live in, and I wouldn't want to live on any other. But here's the reality. Our nation has come to a place, a point in history, where it is now a destination point for missionaries. Believers from China and Africa, all over Asia, they are sending their missionaries to America because they recognize how influential this nation is. And they are watching from across oceans, Supreme Court decisions like came down on Friday, and they are seeing the demise of America. And they're saying the only hope for America is Jesus Christ. So what are they doing? They're sending their sons and daughters to America to preach the gospel because they believe America needs the gospel. And you know what? They're right. But we've got the church right here in America who, who I, don't, I don't know what we're thinking. But I want you to understand, church, your nation needs the gospel. Your city needs the gospel. Your family and your friends, they need the gospel. The people that believe it's okay for two men or two women to get married under the heading and the sanction of marriage ordained by God, people that think that's okay, they need to know the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's not God's plan. Something is wrong when we take it upon ourselves to redefine what God has already defined. Jesus made it very clear. He uses these words on purpose, male, female, father, mother, man, and wife. He understands that marriage is the union between one man and one woman. The two, not the three, not the four, not the five, the two shall become one. Two what? Two human beings. Well, well what are they? A man and a woman. One man plus one woman equals two. 
But when those two are joined together by God, they become, the Bible says, one flesh. So marriage, as defined by Jesus, is between one man and one woman who are created by God, joined together by God, and made one flesh before God. The definition of marriage has been established by God, not man. Do you realize when I take couples through premarital counseling, first thing I tell them is marriage is not a civil union. It's not something man created. It's not what the culture created. God, in the very beginning when he created man and he created woman, God created marriage. God created this. Not the county government, not the state government, not the federal government. God created marriage. And the definition of marriage has been established by God. No man is to separate or redefine what God has joined together. So, is it a marriage or is it a mirage? When we went to the conference in Idaho, they never used the word same-sex marriage. It was kind of funny. They always referred to it as same-sex mirage. But I, I started thinking, well, well what, what is a mirage? You know what a mirage is? Here's the definition of a mirage. A mirage is something that appears real or possible, but is, in fact, not so. So here's the reality. Caitlyn Jenner can call herself a woman, or I should correct myself, Caitlyn Jenner can call himself a woman all he wants, but the reality is he is a man. He may have had surgeries to change his body parts. He may have hormone therapy. But when you get down to the genetics of it, he's got the chromosomes that define him as a man. He cannot change that. Can't do it. It's a mirage. To call a same-sex union, a marriage, we can call it a union, we can call it legal. Hey, you know, if the states decide to do that, we live in America. I might not like it, but that's what can I do about it. Try to, try to vote people in that are going to make better decisions. That's all I can do about it. Pray. But to call it a marriage, no, it's not a marriage. Because we don't have the authority, we don't have the power to change the definition of marriage. God defined that very clearly. And Jesus reinforces what the Father set in motion in the very beginning. So it's not a marriage, it's a mirage. It's something that appears real, it appears possible, but it's not in fact so. Gay marriage is not possible based on the definition of marriage that Jesus himself gave us in the scripture. So on one level, here's, here's what a person can legitimately ask, and I hear this all the time. So imagine someone asking this question, what's the big deal? If two people, male or female, desire to spend the rest of their lives together in what we call marriage, why not just let them do it? To each his own. As long as they're not hurting anyone, if they love one another, then let love win. Oh, I've heard that so many times. Let love win. Let love win. Then everything was love wins, love wins. But that line of thinking might be fine if marriage was just some social or civic institution. But marriage is much more than that. And here's why I'm talking to you, church. If anybody understands, if anybody should understand that marriage is more than a civic or a social institution, it should be the people of God. Now, I don't have time to do it, but here's the reality. Go and read Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, let me just, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the thumbnail um, cliff notes of Ephesians 5. We'll just cut right to the chase. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's go to verse 30. So Paul has been writing, he's writing about husbands and wives. Get down to verse 30, and he's talking to husbands. No one ever, verse 29, no one ever hated his own body, his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes. He's talking about how husbands should love their wives. They should nourish and cherish 
and love them, give themselves for, uh, give themselves for her. Verse thirty-four, four, four. Do you see the continuation of the thought, thought here? Paul is getting ready to tell us why, men, we should do this and what this is all about. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We are members of Jesus' body, of Jesus' flesh, and of Jesus' bones. Then Paul quotes the very same verse Jesus quoted in Matthew 19. Paul quotes it in Ephesians 5, 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. What is marriage? Marriage is the picture on planet Earth. It is the shadow. It's the natural picture of the spiritual reality of Christ and his church. What is marriage about? Two people living in a committed relationship, being happy the rest of their days on earth. That's not what marriage is about. Now, don't get me wrong. You should be happy and joyful. Because the more happy and the more joyful a man and a woman are in their committed marriage, the more God is glorified. So God gets the greatest glory when a man and a woman experience their greatest joy in marriage. So does God want married couples to be joyful and happy? He absolutely does because out of your joy and out of your happiness in a committed marriage God is being glorified so what I want you to see in that scripture in Ephesians is that Paul teaches us what God's design was all about in the beginning when he created a man and a woman and he called it marriage and he made the two one he said this is a mystery this is about Christ and his church marriage gives witness to Christ and his church. This is what marriage is about. So on one level we can say what's the big deal? But it is a big deal. Because we're taking what God has defined. We're taking the very picture of Christ and his church. And we're distorting it. We're taking the glory of God. And we're, we're wiping worse than mud all over it. To deface it. And to demean it. That's what's actually happening. Marriage was created by God as a spiritual union to witness something very specific. Marriage gives witness to Christ and his church. It's first a spiritual truth and reality that makes known to man, the manifold wisdom of God. It makes it known to who? Ephesians 3.10 says the powers and the principalities. Your life, every aspect of your life, believer, as a, as a believer, as a Christian, every aspect of your life gives witness to powers and to principalities. Not the least of which is your marriage, which gives a picture, gives a witness to Christ and his church. And it gives that witness throughout all creation. So marriage is to witness the glory of God in all of his holiness, all of his righteousness, and all of his truth. And by redefining marriage and sanctioning homosexual unions as legitimate marriages, man is defining homosexuality as something holy while God defines it as sinful. I could quote you the scriptures out of Leviticus. I could quote you the scriptures out of Romans. I could quote you the scriptures out of 1 Corinthians. You have to just basically say, I don't believe the Bible to believe that homosexuality is not a sin. It is a sin. I'm not saying this as one removed from the homosexual community. I talk weekly, two to three times a week, if not more, with a professed homosexual. You know what we talk about? We talk about the scripture. And I don't have a problem telling him the Bible teaches that your lifestyle is sinful. Now, he may not totally agree with that, but he has admitted, yes, I know that's what the Bible says, and I'm not sure what to do with that. And my answer is, you need to repent. That's what you need to do with it. He, he doesn't know whether he wants to yet or not. 
So what I'm saying is, it, this doesn't mean, if you believe this, if you believe the Bible is true, it doesn't mean you can't have conversations with sinners. You should be able to have conversations with sinners. Listen, men who are addicted to pornography, that's sinful. Men who are destroying their marriages because they're addicted to pornography, do, are we afraid to tell them, hey, dude, uh, you know, maybe you should, no, we're not afraid to tell them that. We don't have a problem with that because pornography is not socially acceptable for the most part. No one's out there marching for pornography or pedophilia yet, but it's coming too. There are certain things that we don't have a problem calling sin, sin, but we have a problem with some things because they seem to have become socially acceptable. So marriage is this witness of the glory of God. So who is the final authority? So by sanctioning same-sex unions, the Supreme Court has used its God-given authority to force this illegitimate definition upon our nation, and they have opened up the gates to create more legislation, more laws that would attempt to force churches to comply with things that God would deem sinful. So what happens when a culture and a people buy into things that seem true but are false? What happens when a popular force in the culture sways people that are easily swayed? What happens when people live with no real conviction and are swept along with the tide of popular opinion? What happens when people with strong conviction for what is false Are you listening to me? What happens when people with strong conviction for things that are false are not opposed by people who have strong convictions of the truth? So you got two forces. One believes very strongly. They're convicted that what they believe is true. It's right. It's good. But in reality, it's not true it's not right and it's not good and there are people in that nation who know this is neither true this is neither right and this is neither good but because of the sway of the populace because the culture has so overwhelmingly embraced these things these people who know what is true and know what is right they choose to remain silent and stand on the sidelines Perhaps just pray about it. If your prayers don't turn into action, then I would challenge you to really examine how, whether your prayers are really prayers. Prayers ultimately should move us. And prayer should ultimately move us to the will of God. Prayer is not moving God. Prayer is moving you to God. Prayer is you connected to the great big aircraft carrier in the little dinghy attached by the rope and you're pulling on the rope. You're not pulling the aircraft carrier to you. You're pulling yourself to the aircraft carrier. That's what prayer does. And if you say you're praying, but you're not getting closer to the object who, who your prayers are directed toward, then I would say examine your prayer life because prayer should move us. So what happens when the people stand on the sideline and they know what is true and they know what is good and they know what is right, but they do absolutely nothing? You know what the answer to that is? Nothing good. Nothing good. We don't have to go very far back in history to see that reality. My father fought in World War II. My father died in 1989, but he fought in World War II. He landed on the beaches of Normandy after the initial invasion. He built bridges. He built the bridges over which the Allied troops marched into Berlin. But he was there. That was my father. That wasn't very long ago. And we just see... Within our lifetime, 
Within very recent generations, that's exactly what happened. People stood by in Nazi Germany and they did not open their mouths. They did not do anything for the most part. And what was the result? They didn't start out with death camps in Nazi Germany. You read your history. You know, what they, you know how they started out? They passed laws. They took away guns. They deemed uh, people with mental illnesses as unfit to live. And they put them in asylums. And eventually they moved them from the asylums because they couldn't kill them quick enough in the asylums. They moved them from the asylums to death camps. But a lot of them in the asylums, you know what they did? They just euthanized them. And they justified it by saying they're, 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 they're in misery, they're this, they're that, they're not contributing to society, they're weights on society. Laws were passed and people did nothing. Abortion became legal in Germany. Guess who was aborted? All the people that the state didn't think deserved to live. That's who was aborted. You know where that all ended up? That ended up with allied soldiers liberating death camps and witnessing horrors so unspeakable that you and I can't even imagine the things that went on there. Say, well, that that had to be, you know, thousands of years ago in some uncivilized land. No, it wasn't. That was in one of the most advanced and industrialized nations on earth. That's what happens when people turn a blind eye. That's what happens when people turn a deaf ear. That's what happens when we get sucked up with the popular cultural moment. And we say, oh, there's nothing wrong with this. It's okay. Listen, these things never have immediate effects that we can necessarily see. They really do for those that have eyes to see. But for a lot of people, we don't see the harm. We don't see. It's just marriage. Big deal. Just two people that want to live together. So they have sex different than you have sex. What's the big deal? Really? Let's just keep going down that road and let's just see where that brings us to. If God is not the final authority to govern man, then man will govern himself and do what is right in his own eyes. And that definition of what is right will change with the wind. Do you understand that? Who determines what's right and who determines what's wrong? A Supreme Court? Well, we got one court today. What, what, that, what is that court going to decide 10 years from now, 20 years from now? There was a Supreme Court at one time who said that people like Marva were not human beings because their skin is black. Should we just accept what they say? No, we should accept what God says. That when God created man, he didn't specify a color. <laughs> he just said they were all created in his image. Whether you have a tan or whether you don't have a tan has nothing to do with how human you are. But guess what? A Supreme Court decided that one time. Thankfully, that was overturned. and We came to our senses. I wonder when we're going to come to our senses and stop murdering babies every day. I wonder when we're going to come to our senses and stop calling evil good and good evil and saying that this doesn't matter anymore. What matters is people's happiness. What matters are their rights. What matters is their freedom. That's what matters. That's what man says. That's man doing what's right in his own eyes. And unless there is an absolute standard of truth, we have no truth. Only a floating standard of falsehoods disguised as truth that changes with the wind and with the whims of man. So love... And truth, love can only operate from truth. Jesus declared this about the truth in John 8, 32. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So the question becomes, what are we going to do with the truth? Jesus is not only the truth. He is love personified. He is God who is love in the flesh. And if men who know the truth do not stand for the truth, And speak out the truth, but quietly watch as the tide rolls by. They will be swept up with that tide and their love will have grown cold. If you're not resisting the current that is pulling you away from God and pulling our culture 
away from God. If you're not resisting that, I want to encourage you to begin to resist that. Don't let your love grow cold. Don't buy the lie that love doesn't, doesn't challenge. Love doesn't challenge sin. Just leave them alone. It's all going to work out in the end. Now, here's, here's the big thing in the church now. We've got these huge arguments going on within the church. This isn't the world. I'm talking about the church where many people in the church don't even believe in hell anymore. It doesn't really matter whether they're homosexual. It doesn't matter whether they're Muslim. It doesn't matter whether they confess Jesus or not because no one's going to end up in hell. God, God saved everybody and everybody's going to go to heaven. So don't upset people with your, your fundamentalist Christianity. Come on, get with it. We're living in the modern world now. Everybody knows hell's not real. Everybody knows it doesn't matter what path you take. They all lead to God. If you're a Christian, that's great for you. But don't force that on somebody else. Those are arguments taking place within the church. These are people who profess to love Jesus. And they're writing books and blogs and and seminars teaching this. Now, what am I supposed to do as your pastor? Just hope that you don't ever get exposed to that? Should I never say anything to my, that might upset you or challenge your belief? I hope, I hope what I say challenges you. And if it upsets you, then good. Maybe it'll make you dig into the Bible and find out what the truth really is. Love can only operate from the truth. For those who know the truth... We can choose to remain silent, choose to offer no resistance, choose to ignore the signs and the signals around us. In short, we can choose to ignore God and his truth and convince ourselves that the lie is more true than the truth. But the lie is not truth. It's a lie. And that's, how, that's why lies are effective, because they look like truth. What, do you think the devil's going to come to you with a lie that's obviously false? No, he's going to come to you with a lie that looks like the truth so that you'll believe the lie. Come on, we're smarter than this, I hope. The lie is not the truth, but the lie may certainly be easier to deal with than in the short term than the truth is. This is our problem today. This is the problem in the church. The lie, it's easier to give in to the lie than to try to deal with the truth because there's too much opposition to the truth. People are going to call you a hater. They're going to call you a radical they're going to call you a hick they're going to call you a fundamentalist that which has become a dirty word they're going to call you every name in the book you can imagine and a lot of people wilt under the pressure because they don't they don't want to have that label put on them because somehow we've come to believe that acceptance of everything without challenging anything is the new definition of love and and i want to know where you get that where in the Bible do you find that? Start in Genesis and read all the way to the end of Re- Revelation. Tell me where you find that even almost in the Bible. People keep throwing Jesus' name around like, as if Jesus was some hippie who didn't do anything but walk around high all the time and love and peace and never challenged anything. I'm like, Read John 8 and read Matthew 23 and you will see Jesus use some of the strongest language you can imagine. I mean, he is just calling people out and calling them names. Not, I mean, he's not even being nice. He's not even almost being nice. But you know what he is being? He's being loving. Because he knew if these men do not come to grips with their sin and their sinfulness, if I don't tell them the truth, then they can never be set free. This is why Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Don't be afraid of the truth. I'm not saying be ugly and be mean. I'm saying speak the truth in love. If you just speak the truth in love, listen, people are going to not like you because they don't like the truth. It's not because they don't like you. It's because they don't like the truth. Love can't remain silent. Love cannot affirm the lie. Love cannot condone sin. Love cannot call evil good and good evil. Sin is evil. All sin is evil. You hear? All sin is evil. Not just homosexuality. All sin. Your adultery is evil. Your heterosexual fornication is evil. Your drug addiction is evil. Your alcoholism 
that's ruining your family is evil. Your stealing is evil. Your cheating on your taxes is evil. Listen, sin is evil. I'm not discriminating against one sin in particular. I'm just highlighting one today because it happens to be the one that's at the forefront of our culture right now. And we shouldn't ignore it because it is. So sin is evil. Love calls sin what it is. It's evil. Love can't allow someone to remain in their sin unchallenged. Love can't force someone out of their sin, but love will call them out of their sin and extend an arm to help them out of their sin. Love will identify sin and compel the sinner to come out of sin and into Christ. Calling sin sinful is truthful. To call a person out of sin is to love your neighbor. It's not only to address his wounds, but it is to save his life. Love and truth can't be separated. Even when the truth offends us, it can't be separated. For one who doesn't know better, the doctor's needle or the doctor's scalpel or the doctor's healing art may seem unloving and even painful. But the purpose is healing and the purpose is life. It would be considered unloving to withhold the thing that could bring us life when it is available to the one in need. To withhold medical care that could save someone's life, we would say that's unloving. Why don't we see withholding the gospel that could save someone eternally? Why don't we see that as unloving? We, we say, when we see people giving the gospel, we say, oh, you're being unloving, brother. Don't, don't condemn them. Don't judge them. I'm, I'm not judging anybody. Listen, Jesus tells the Pharisees, the word has judged you. The word will judge you. Just give them the word. Don't hide the word from them. Give them the word in truth. Give it to them in love. If they get offended, you can't do anything about that. Pray for them. Continue to love them. Continue to extend your arm, hoping that they will come out of sin and into Christ. Truth compromised to make people feel safe in their sin may seem loving for a time, but it can in no way save them from their sin and in the end will be seen for what it is. Hiding or compromising the truth for the sake of soothing others in their sin is the most despicable act of hatred disguised as love. Do you see that? You may make yourself feel good about yourself. People make themselves feel good about compromise, soothing others while they're in their sin. But the reality is this, that is the most despicable act of hatred you could ever inflict on somebody. Stand for truth. Stand in love. We are called to preach the gospel. Preaching the gospel identifies sin, and it calls men out of sin. We are called to bear witness to the truth. The truth will judge men. The truth will set men free. The truth will save us, or the truth will condemn us. But we must know the truth to know Christ, who is our life. We're called to walk in love. Love doesn't make people feel safe in their sin. Love shows them the danger. Love calls them out of the danger. Love doesn't turn a blind eye. Love doesn't remain silent. Love doesn't walk the path of least resistance. Love runs to danger. Love sounds the alarm. Love walks the narrow way of truth. But love never walks alone, but compels others to come along. We're called to stand. To stand is not to back down. It's not to sit down. To stand is to be firm and uncompromising in the truth. To stand is to resist sin steadfastly. To stand is to contend for the faith against those who would oppose it. And I would add to contend for that faith and to stand in that faith in love. The Bible is not to be shaped by the culture, but the Bible should be shaping the culture around us. I want to read one last scripture and we're going to close. This is from the book of Acts chapter 4. After the apostles had preached the gospel, healed the lame man by the gate, beautiful in the Supreme Court of their day brought them 
before the magistrates, before the rulers of their day, and commanded that they not preach Jesus any longer. It is now against the law to preach Jesus. Saul, the Pharisee, went about arresting people and putting them to death because they preached Jesus. And so they challenged these guys, but like most politicians, they were afraid of the people because the people had seen the miracle, and it's like, look, if we do something to these people, they're not going to reelect us to office. We may have a riot on our hands. So what can we do? Well, let's beat them, and let's threaten them to the very inch of their life and command them not to preach Jesus anymore. That's what they did. But here's the response of Peter and John. Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things we have seen and heard. Don't think that it is far-fetched that there will come a day in America when the very message that I just preached to you could land me in jail. There are pastors in other parts of the world, Western countries, Ireland, Sweden, who have been put in jail for preaching what they call hate. One for calling Islam satanic and another one for calling homosexuality sinful. If you don't think that can't happen in America, you better pull your head out of the sand. You better wake up real quick. And we're either going to come to a place where we're going to compromise and we're going to go with the party line or we're going to stand up and we're going to live the truth, preach the truth. It may cost us a tax-exempt status, big deal. It may cost us our reputation, big deal. It may land you in jail. That might be a bigger deal for some of you. I don't know. But the question is, we're not going to stand before the Supreme Court of the United States one day. We're going to stand before the Supreme Judge of the universe. And the, the question is going to be, what did you do with the truth? And how are you going to answer that? Are we going to be a people that fear man more than we fear God? Or are we going to get serious about this gospel? Learn what this Bible teaches us. Have an answer for the hope that's within us. Listen, do not go out and spew hatred and condemnation. That's not what this is about. If you encounter anyone in sin, whether they're homosexual, heterosexual, it doesn't matter. What they should know first and foremost is that you love God and that you love them. And the reason you're concerned about them is because of that love of God. And the very fact that you're willing to take a risk and tell them the truth is because you do love them and you do truly care about them. You don't have to be obnoxious about it. You don't have to be weird about it. But you need to be willing to stand up for the truth. You will give an account to God one day. I will give an account to God one day. America is going to pass away one day. Sooner or later, it will. Don't think we're unique of any nation on planet Earth because we're not. If the Lord tarries, America will just be a memory in the history books like every other nation and empire. But you know what has lasted? God has lasted. His truth has lasted. It's like the song we sing. The tides, the kings are like the tides. They come and they go. But God remains his truth. Jesus said, not one jot, not one tittle. My word will remain. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall remain. So, what are you going to do with his word? And what are you going to do with his truth? I'll leave you with that question. Let us stand. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. God, help us to be a people, Lord, that are seen and known by Christ and by the love who is Christ. 
Christ in His love did not withhold the truth from anyone. But it was that love that caused Christ to proclaim, to live, to walk, to be the very embodiment and essence of truth and love. God, I pray that your church would be that in the earth today. Lord, we understand men will be upset and angered by the truth. But I pray, Father God, that we would be a people that understands that true love wins. God wins. And in the end, you will set all things right, make all things right, God, help us to be a people that has a passion, a heart for the lost, that we will pray, that we will work, that we will witness through our everyday lives in every way we would let your light shine and that we would in no way hide that light and keep it from those that need it the most. Father, be glorified. Through your church we pray and have mercy on our nation and grant to us repentance and humility. In Jesus' name, amen.